Well, good morning. I almost would think we're in Wisconsin by how many people showed up on such a cold day. But Katie and I are originally from Wisconsin, so we're used to this sort of thing, I guess. But uh, we haven't been with you for a couple weeks. And actually, two weeks ago, we were able to go to a Packer game. And we always know, whenever we would, when we lived in Deerfield, we would always know when we've hit Wisconsin's border, because we'd stop at a gas station, all of a sudden we'd be like, there's a lot more camo and blaze orange here than in Illinois. And so when we were at the Packer game, there's just this sea of camouflage and blaze orange and people with Packer jerseys over their camouflage and blaze orange and Packer jerseys printed in camouflage. And so we're like, okay, we know we're here. We're, <laughs> we're in Wisconsin. But um, as Kevin mentioned, um, I'm Pastor Mitch. Um, and Katie and I are both leading um, an effort in Woodstock to plant a new church there. And so we um, our new congregation starting up there. And we come to LifeSpring um, every so often because we're connected to this church as our sending church. Um, we come here to enjoy worship and fellowship on Sunday mornings because we haven't yet started Sunday morning services. But we're doing a whole lot of other things. Um, so if you're curious about that, um, just uh, ask me. Well, in May of 2015, the world awaited the birth of Prince William and Kate Middleton's second child, Princess Charlotte. And cameras huddled around the hospital and were waiting to get some news. And reporters were, were putting out information as they heard it so people could stay up to date with what was going on. And the newborn girl would be presented to the queen um, as the newest addition to this royal family. And they'd be welcoming their new child into it. And for those of us who have been Christians for a while, we know that... We know what Christmas is all about. We've seen pageants and concerts, and we've sung carols, and we've seen nativity sets in our house and outdoors, and we've seen everything. And so we know what it's all about. We've been doing this all for years. And because of this, perhaps, um, like what Kevin was mentioning, perhaps the story of Jesus has become old news. The story of Jesus' birth has become old news. It's been so overtold and so commercialized that we just hear it as something that's not that significant. And because it's old news, we don't hear it as good news. For some of you, perhaps you aren't that familiar with the story. And if that's the case, if you're expecting a royal birth like uh, Prince William and Kate uh, Middleton's uh, daughter, the circumstances of Jesus' royal birth will take you by surprise. And so today we got the privilege of hearing from the gospel according to Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20 and, and we're going to begin um, with a prayer similar to what uh, Kevin prayed that we would hear this story afresh as good news for us today, the good news of Jesus' birth. So let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be a minister of your word this morning. Would you let us hear you this morning through the songs, through um, the words I've prepared um, because we desperately need to hear your voice and not mine. And so those words that are purely from me, would you just let them fall to the ground? And those words that are from you, would you let them sink into our hearts and let us hear this message you have for us this morning? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So over across the Atlantic Ocean and on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and north of Egypt and west of, of modern-day Jordan, we have the land of Israel. It's a small land about the size of the state of New Jersey, um, but it's a very important land because not only was this the intersection of multiple major trade routes in the ancient world, but it's the very land that God himself gave to the people of Israel. And it's the land where our story is taking place today. And, I, and I'm just pointing out where, where is Israel on the map, where is it, and I'm talking about it as a real place because it is a real place. And these things really happened 
in that place. And sometimes we can forget that, as Kevin was sharing with us. We can see Jesus' birth as some you know, fanciful Christmas story that we just remember once a year, and we, um, we, we f- feel warm and fuzzy inside as we sip our cocoa and wait to open presents, and we just kind of tell the story as a nostalgia um, of something we remember to make us feel good. But the author of these stories, Luke, the beloved physician, didn't intend for us to see it as a fictional tale in any way, because he intended us to read this as historical events that changed everything. Luke has been preparing us for Jesus' birth as he's been writing in his gospel account, and we've met several figures so far in the Advent series that we've been going through, and these were people that were receiving the news of this birth. We uh, met Mary and Elizabeth, Zechariah, um, and uh, I might have messed up the names there, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, we've met them, and they've been hearing the announcement um, from angels and and prophecies and other figures saying, like, this is going to happen, this news of this birth is happening. And Jesus' virgin mother was told, you're going to give birth um, not only to a son, but the son of the Most High God. And and not only that, but he's going to be the king that Israel has been waiting for. God promised Israel, his people in the Old Testament, I'm going to send a king who's going to restore my kingdom. He's going to have a a reign of peace and justice and blessing. And and it's going to be um, the way that I'm going to defeat my enemies who have oppressed you. And now we're hearing in Luke, hey, the time has come. Good news. This birth of this king that God has told you about is going to happen. And this king is going to be born to a virgin and her carpenter fiancé, Joseph. And so today, the moment has finally arrived of Jesus' birth. And as we rehearse the story, we're going to ask a big question that we're going to answer. Why was Jesus' birth good news? And how should we respond to it? Why was Jesus' birth good news? And how should we respond to it? And we see this story unfold in in three scenes. And so we're going to look carefully at those scenes and then we're going to answer our big questions. So let's begin in Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph by rereading verses 2, 1 through 7 in the Gospel according to Luke. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. One of the concerns that Luke has, he's the author of this book, one of the concerns he has is to place Jesus' birth and the happenings of Jesus' life into real historical setting that they actually happened in. He doesn't say, well, you know, once upon a time there was a land and there were some people and Jesus did this, this, and that. But he actually wants to say this is, the, this is the time and this is the actual place and these are the actual real names of people who were there and saw it happen. This is real history and these things really happened. And so here Luke gives us the setting for Jesus' birth. He gives us the when, the where, and actually kind of gives us more details than we might want to know. We're like, who's Quirinius? Who's Caesar Augustus? Who are these people? And there was a registration, so they had to go to Bethlehem. And so we might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Why is he giving us all this stuff? Well, if we were to go back to the opening 
verses of this book of the Bible, we find that Luke is writing for somebody named Theophilus. And this was probably uh, a patron who is financing um, his effort to write this book. He, he may have said, hey Luke, I, <clears throat> I've heard a lot of things. I want to be confident in what they're talking about. And so here, I'm going to give you this money and you're going to go and write this orderly account. And that's what Luke calls it. He calls it a, a narrative, an, an orderly account of the things that have happened among us. And so Luke isn't writing some fairy tale. He is writing this, this narrative, things that have actually happened. He's telling a story that others have been telling from the beginning, a story of God's work among them, God's work that happened to real people and actual places and actual times. And after all, none of this would matter unless it actually happened. Jesus' birth and what he did wouldn't matter unless it actually happened. If we were just all sitting here kind of remembering this thing that, oh, that's a nice you know, story Christians have made up and we're just sitting around, it wouldn't matter at all for our lives. It would just be something um, that we think about for fun. And I like to think about it like this. When I mentioned uh, Katie, my wife and I went to a Packer game um, a few weeks back, I like to think of it like Luke is like tagging people and locations in the social media posts that he's like putting on Facebook and Instagram. Because, you know, you could, when we were at the Packer game, we could be like, well, we're just, you know, we took pictures of just the field with the players on it, and then we can post it online and be like, look, we went to the Packer game. But really, I could go on Google Images and find a picture of the Packer stadium and post and be like, look, I was at the Packer game. But what we do, I mean, I'm sure most of you have heard of this thing called selfies, where you're like, you can't, you don't really want to bother somebody else to take the picture for you. And so you're like, yeah, you know, you kind of put yourself in the picture and it kind of gives us authentic feel. Or maybe you do it with a couple other people. There's actually things called selfie sticks. Has anybody seen one of these where you put the camera on there and and then you're just like way out there and you're like, you're taking this picture of yourself because people figured your arms aren't long enough unless you're me. I have a big <laughs> wingspan, but it's, but the, so you take, why do you take a picture of yourself at the location? You know, you, you see yourself all the time. Why, you can look at yourself in the mirror, you can just take a picture of the beautiful landscape, but we want to take a picture of ourselves to show, hey, I was actually at this spot. Like, look, this isn't just a picture off the internet. I was there. Um, and then when you post things on Facebook or Instagram, you can be like, okay, I'm going to tag, I'm going to tag Katie in this picture. Like, look, somebody was here with me. And then look, I'm going to tag the location. I'm at Lambeau Field. And so this, it's like, I was actually there. And it gives us this, hey, this actually happened. And I was actually there. Um, authentication to it when I put it online. And that's kind of what Luke is doing. It's a, it's a, I'm going to tag who was there? I'm going to tag the location of when it happened. And, and look, you can, just, you can go and check these places out. You can go and talk to the person. This person was there. Go and talk to them, and they can tell you what happened if you don't believe me. And so all of this is to build confidence in Theophilus, the person that Luke is writing for, and anyone else, um, including us, who would read um, this, this gospel account. And so often Jerusalem, um, we're told that Jesus will be born in the city of David. Often Jerusalem is called the city of David because that was his capital city. But David was actually from Bethlehem. And so here Bethlehem is called um, the city of David. And we already know from the angel that Jesus is going to sit on the throne of his father David. And David lived a thousand years before Jesus. Um, and he, but he is... Uh, was the greatest king in Israel. And now we're being told Jesus is a descendant of King David, not because he's biologically related to him, um, because Joseph is, is the one in the line of David, but Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. But he's in the line of David because he's legally related to him, because Joseph is now his earthly father. 
So Luke is showing us here, look, Jesus is in the line of King David and he was born in Bethlehem, the same city King David was born in a thousand years ago. And, then they, and they get there because Joseph needs to go to his hometown in order to register for taxes. But while they're there, Mary goes into labor and she gives birth to Jesus. And then, and then she wraps him up, just like all moms would have done in that time with these strips of cloth to swaddle him, to keep him secure and warm. And up until now, if we don't know the story, we're imagining a normal birth scene inside, somewhere in a house. But then we hear these surprising words. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there's no place for them in the inn. And a manger uh, is a feeding trough, and in those days it would have been made out of stone, and we have a, a, well, a picture of it um, on the screen. And so uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't many trees in the land of Israel. So Joseph, he wasn't uh, like, it's very unlikely that he worked with wood as a carpenter. Um, and the, the, the word behind it actually shows he probably was a, a stone worker uh, as a carpenter. Um, and so a manger would have um, looked something like this. And so this is what Jesus is being laid into. And so the place that didn't have room for them, it was, it was likely a guest room or something in, in someone's house. And there's, a, there's another picture that shows the scale of it with a little kid in, in there. So it's about how big it would have been. But, uh, and so this, this thing that, uh, that's translated as inn was probably like, it could have been a guest room in someone's house or like a local shelter. Um, it could have been a formal inn, but it, it, that's not quite as likely. But, but either way, there would have been like a stable either on the first floor of the house. There would have been a first floor where they put the animals, second floor is where people would have stayed, or the stable would have been um, a built structure a little bit a ways, or it would have been in a cave. And so this is where um, Jesus um, is born. Mary and Joseph find themselves in the stable because there's no room in the place of lodging for them. In very early tr- church tradition, which is often decently reliable because people come up with the locations of where certain things happen based on people who are around. And so they say, yeah, this is where it happened. And then people start going there. And then uh, usually a big church building gets built over the spot to like preserve it as a holy site. And so <clears throat> it, it places Jesus' birth in a cave in Bethlehem. And so today there's this church building over the spot um, called the Church of the Nativity. And they have the exact spot marked where Mary gave birth. There it is. So I don't know if that's exciting or not to be like, this is a spot. And so people come from all over the world and they like touch this, they kiss it, they, they pray over it because they think this is the exact um, spot that it is. It's mostly um, from the Catholic tradition that people do that. But this is like, it's unlikely that that's the exact spot, but within 50 feet of this place is where Jesus, uh, where Mary gave birth to Jesus. And so we, here we have the one that Luke has been describing as the king God told his people to look forward to, the one that's going to have an everlasting kingdom of justice and peace and blessing, the one who will defeat all of Israel's enemies and the one who will reconcile uh, heaven and earth. And where is he born? Not in a palace, not even in a house. He's born in a stable surrounded by animals and he's laid in an animal feeding trough after his birth. And so this isn't quite what you would expect for the birth of the Son of the Most High God. And yet, here it is, we're told in this, this lowly, humble state, Jesus is born into this stable, into this world. Well, one feature of royal births, um, even Prince William's um, daughter, was that there's a, a town crier or, or herald who will announce the birth to the town, like, hey, it's this, so-and-so has been born, and this is the name, and this is the, this is the gender. 
And even though Jesus' birth is unusual circumstances, his birth was announced um, by heralds. So let's move to the second scene of our story. And so we're watching Mary placing her baby in this stone um, feeding trough, and the, and the camera fades to black. And when we fade back in, we're in a field um, with shepherds who are watching over their sheep. And so let's read <clears throat> verses 2, uh, from chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So there's a place in Palestine, um, which used to be in the land of Israel, but now it's the West Bank or, or Palestine that's um, and it's near Bethlehem, and it's called the Shepherd's Fields, which people think this is the actual spot that the shepherds were. It was, and it was almost certainly in this location, and the field that is marked is a reasonable, but it's impossible, uh, it's po- impossible to prove that that was the actual spot. But, but people think this may have been the spot because it was close to a water source. There's remains that indicate um, there's a, a human settlement there. Um, and there's a cave that people think maybe the shepherds lived in this cave. And so the certainty grade on the field is a, a C, for the, that being the actual field, but the region itself is an A, so we know, um, this, you know this is what it looked like. You can see, you don't see many trees, you see a lot of rocks, and so that's um, why many things are made out of stone. And you, you read in the Old Testament how King Solomon would import cedar trees to build things um, because there was just stone in Israel. So why am I telling you about all these locations? Well, it's because I want you to feel what Luke wanted his readers, both his ancient readers and his modern readers, that these things really happened. He was writing about real places. We can show pictures of them. People have marked the locations and said, this is, uh, people were you know, flocking to these spots because uh, they're being told this is, this is where this happened. So Christians started flocking there and then they get marked as the actual locations that it happened. You could go there then and you can go there now. So what happens in the field? The shepherds are watching over there their flocks in the darkness of the night and suddenly an angel starts walking up to them and the the glory of the Lord shines all around the shepherds and of course uh, they react with great fear because it's the the darkness of night all they have is you know the stars and the moon to give them light all of a sudden there's this glory of the Lord around them and this uh, messenger standing in front of them but the angel comforts them with the words fear not I think, just so we can get a view of what an angel is, the word angel in Scripture literally means messenger. And so a messenger could be sent by God, it could be sent by humans, but the word angel uh, means messenger. And so this is a, a heavenly being coming on, sent by God um, as a messenger to give them uh, a message. And so what's the message? He tells them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
And so he tells them, I'm bringing you good news of great joy. And, and, and the, that phrase, bring good news, is the same word we get evangel- the word evangelize from. And so this is what evangelizing means. It means to bring good news. And so the angel evangelizes them with the good news of Jesus' birth. And we are meant to receive this news right along with the shepherds. And so why does he say it's, why is this good news? Like why is, he say, why is it good news? Well, he says it, In verse 11, he says, Because unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so in Bethlehem, in the city of David, a Savior has been born. And that's why this birth is good news. This is the Savior who is none other than the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King that Israel has been waiting for. But not only is he the Christ, he's He's the Lord himself. The same Lord whose glory is shining around the shepherds is the same Lord who is just born in a feeding trough a little over a mile away from them in the small town of Bethlehem. And so the angel is the herald, the, the town crier of the royal birth of Jesus. God uh, has sent a messenger to tell people, look, a royal birth has happened. Is presenting him to these shepherds. So they've heard about this extraordinary person they're supposed to find and so where might they expect to find this Savior? This is where it gets surprising again because the angel tells the shepherds that he's going to be found swaddled in a feeding trough, not in a palace, not even in a house, in a feeding trough. He'll be found with the animals. And so this strange and unexpected scene that the angel describes to them is going to be uh, the sign to them that they've indeed come upon the king that they're talking about because you know, well, how are we going to find this baby that's been born to be the Savior? Oh, you're going to find him in a stable, in a feeding trough. And then you know, okay, this is the one the, the angel was talking about. And suddenly and unexpectedly, there's a, a heavenly host all around them, or, or an army is the actual word, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on, peace among, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so heaven's armies are singing praises to God at the birth of Jesus. And the angel and the heavenly army depart and the shepherds look at one another and say, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they take this message of good news from the angel as a message from God the Lord. The Lord God has made this known to us. And at the same time, they're going to see a baby who is Christ the Lord. And so God can be the Lord and Jesus can be the Lord because we worship a God who is one God in three persons. So Mary was told that her baby boy would be the son of the Most High God. Jesus is God the Father's son. And the shepherds are going to see something they they surely are not fully grasping at this point. They've heard this baby's been born, he's going to be a savior, he's Christ the Lord. But they aren't grasping the point that the eternal son of God from eternity has entered into history at a certain time in a certain place as a helpless newborn baby and he was laid in a feeding trough for animals. So from the shepherd's field, our camera pans back to Bethlehem as the shepherds make about a mile journey um, from the field that they are in over to where Jesus is. So let's read verses 16 through 20. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this field. And all who heard it, concerning this child, sorry, Verse 18, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So from the fields, the shepherds move with haste to Bethlehem where they find Mary and Joseph and the baby. They find the scene exactly as the angels had described it. They find a baby swaddled in claws, lying in a feeding trough. And upon seeing it, they reported to all those present what the angel had told them. And this would be the reporting. Look, the angels told us that good news of great joy has come into the world, that its Savior has been born in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. And so there's apparently a group of people in Mary and Joseph's presence who are not specified, but the group reacts with, with wonder. Um, and this doesn't necessarily like indicate faith, but it's, it's a surprise and wonder at God's revelation that has been given to them. And this group maybe didn't even know Mary and Joseph, and so they know nothing about chapter 1 of Luke that we all know about, about all the prophecies and all the revelations by angels that have come. And so what they're seeing, they're staring at a couple who has put their baby in a feeding trough because there's no room for them in the lodging place. And they're hearing this news that this baby is the Christ, the Lord. He's going to be the Savior for all people. And this has been announced as a royal birth of good news, and that's how we're... This, this one? What, so what an astonishment and surprise that would bring. But Mary's reaction is different. Luke doesn't tell us what she is thinking, but he's telling us that she is thinking. And she's, she's kind of pondering and thinking through and reflecting on what's been said, and she's mulling it over in her mind. And, and perhaps this was a confirmation to her of what the angel told her, that her son was going to be the son of the Most High God. And so this could have been a, wow, this is, this is really happening. You know, maybe it's like, okay, maybe that was a fluke that that angel told me that thing and I've been bearing this child for nine months now and but this was like wow the, and more angels and more people are telling me about this so maybe this was a confirmation to her and the shepherds leave glorifying and praising God just as the angels had done and why do they glorify and praise God well we're told because all they had because of all they had heard and seen as it had been told to him to them the angel had brought them good news of great joy. And then the shepherds were given a sign, a proof. This is, this is the proof that this good news is for real. And then they found the sign. What the angels said was true. A Savior had been born who is none other than the Messiah of Israel, the Lord himself. So let's turn to our big question we're answering today. Why was Jesus' birth good news? And how should we respond to it? So first, why was Jesus' birth good news? The the angel ter- told us in verse 11, it's because he is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the angel is serving as a herald of this royal birth. It's the, the birth of the one who is royal because he is the Son of God and because he is the descendant of King David and he will sit on his throne. And Jesus' birth is good news because it's the birth of a king, but not any old king. This is the king God has promised the, to Israel, the king who would bring them back from their separation they've caused with God. And at the same time, he is no mere king. He, he is the king. He is not just a sen- descendant of David who will sit on the throne, but he is a descendant of God who will sit on God's throne. He is the king. He is God's own son taking on flesh. But why is, this, why is a king like that good news? Why is Jesus, God's own son, come in the flesh good news? Well, I couldn't track down the the quote, but I think it's C.S. Lewis who talks about, we tend to view the world as God's kind of upstairs. It's like a two-story house. God's upstairs and we're downstairs. And sometimes you can hear God thumping around up there. Sometimes he might yell down the stairs, you know, and tell you to do something. But in general, like our world's 
um, don't mix. And, and C.S. Lewis, if that was who um, said this, uh, says don't, we, we shouldn't think about God like that. It's more like how God interacts with us is not like a two-story house. It's more like he's an author and he's writing a story. And so if your characters in a story, like imagine C.S. Lewis writing his Chronicles of Narnia books, um, none of the characters in the Chronicles of Narnia know who C.S. Lewis is, right? Because he's not in the story. He's not a character in the story. So they were, the only way they would know who the author of that story is, you know, just pretending Narnia is real, they would never meet C.S. Lewis unless C.S. Lewis wrote himself into the story as one of the characters who, who go, comes on, on the scene and interacts with them and, and talks with them. And so God is writing this, this story in human history and we're all characters in it. And we would never know who the author of this story is unless God interacted with us. And so what God does is he writes himself into the story with Jesus. 2,000 years ago, he became a character on the stage of history in the form of a baby boy born to working class Jews in first century B.C. Bethlehem in the land of Israel during the first census of Quirinius, governor of Syria, while Caesar Augustus was emperor of the Roman Empire. God became flesh and entered into human history at that exact moment. He wrote himself in as a character. This is good news because the damage and separation we had caused in our relationship with God was impossible for us to repair. No human could save us from the penalty of sinning against an infinitely holy, good, and just God. Only God himself could repair this relationship. And only he was capable of being the Savior we needed. And so he wrote himself into the story as the Savior. No human character could be written in as the Savior to save humanity. God had to write himself in as the one who could save us. To come as the king who would save us from the alienation and death our sins have caused. That's why Jesus' birth is good news. Because King Jesus was born to be our Savior. And this is the answer to the first part of our big question. Why was Jesus' birth good news? Because King Jesus was born to be our Savior. So let's move to the second part of our big question. How should we respond to it? How should we respond to this good news? Well, there are three ways. First, we should receive it as good news. Because King Jesus was born to be our Savior, we should receive his birth as good news. Well, that may seem obvious. Well, duh, it's a, you're saying it's good news. What else would we receive it as? But I don't think we always think of the Christmas story as good news. For, because for one, news is about something that actually happened. Somebody's coming and reporting on something that actually happened. It, it's about an event that's taken place in history. And during the Christmas season, there are lots of other stories that swirl around with the story of Jesus' birth. And, there are, and we may be tempted to lump his story in with all those other stories, something nostalgic that we do, you know, we talk about to have a good holiday. But we must never do this because Jesus' birth was the arrival of a king who would save us, who would vanquish our enemies of sin and Satan and death, and who would live the life we could never live and die the death that we deserve, who would reunite us us with our creator, who would bring peace between heaven and earth. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He was fully God and became fully man so he could fully pay the price for the sins of man. So God writing himself into our story is the best news we could ever hear because it doesn't compare with any other royal birth announcement because this is none other than the birth announcement of the Son of God coming onto the stage of history. Messengers came to tell the shepherds of this good news and we should go as messengers to tell others of this good news. This time of year isn't about Christmas trees and presents and 
gaining 20 pounds because you ate too many cookies and you need to make a New Year's resolution diet because of it. That was a joke. It's a... But so we shouldn't let those things be the focus because they can be used to point us to Jesus, Christmas trees and presents and, and all these things can be used to point us to Jesus, but they can't be the focus because Jesus is the focus and these are tools to help us celebrate his birth. So when you think about Christmas, what do you think about receiving? Presents, family, food. None of these are bad, but we need to receive the good news of Jesus' birth because he is our one and only hope of being made right with God. So how do we respond to Jesus' birth? First, because King Jesus was born to be our Savior, we should receive his birth as good news. Second, because King Jesus was born to be our Savior, we should rejoice with great joy. The angels told the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. The news of our King who saves us from the penalty and power and presence of our sin should fill us with joy. There's a separation between us and God. There's a a lack of peace. There's a hostility. We made ourselves enemies with him because we rebelled against him. But the heavenly army saying that now there can be peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. God is pleased with those who surrender their lives to King Jesus and discover the joy of relationship with him. So imagine you live in the days of kings and queens and um, we don't, maybe don't quite feel what this is like. You know, there's a queen of England, but she doesn't have quite, you know, the same power that kings and queens back in the day have. But imagine you're living in one of their kingdoms and the one law is that you must honor and pledge your allegiance to this king above all other things and submit to him as your only king, which means you follow his ways. What he says goes. And so one day the king's men come to your village and they discover that you've made up your own laws that are completely opposite of what the king wants his kingdom to be like. Instead of loving people, you use them to get what you want. Instead of taking care of the poor, you ignore them. Instead of honoring the king as the one in charge, everyone honors themselves as in charge. And how, the king is going, how is the king going to respond to this sort of rebellion of saying, you know, we're just, I know this is what you say we're supposed to do, but we're just going to kind of do it our own way. Make us the center, not you the center. Do, you know, we're going to do the exact opposite of what you want. Well, he's going to send a bigger troop of soldiers and he's going to squash this rebellion, either killing or imprisoning everyone involved. And so this is us. We rebel against God by going our own way instead of his. We love other things more than him and we pledge loyalty to other things and call them our God. And anything that is above God on our priority list means that we are not putting him at the center of our lives. And every deed we do that does not love others as ourselves shows our rebellion. And every deed we do that does not show we love God more than everything else shows our rebellion. We are a rebel force in God's kingdom. So go back to the human scenario and imagine you are uh, imprisoned for your act of rebellion. You get taken away from your family and your kids are screaming and crying as you're getting taken away. And you're thrown into a dark, damp prison cell awaiting your fate as a rebel against the king. Because this is the penalty you deserve. You're living in his kingdom, that means you abide by rules. It's sort of like, in my house, my rules. That's the same thing. God's kingdom, his rules. And this is the penalty you deserve, but it doesn't make it any easier to accept. But now imagine that one day um, somebody comes to your cell and it's actually the king's son. And you kind of have your head down because you're just you know, used to um, hanging out in the dark and in the damp. And he comes down and he lifts your head with his hand and he tells you, you're free to go. Your penalty has been paid. 
and joy and astonishment fill your heart. You know, and there's a surprise as they take the shackles off your wrists and as you walk away, you can feel where they've been rubbing on your skin and you're leaving with this joy and this happiness. But then you take a look back as you leave and you see the king's son putting on the shackles you once had on. You see him being treated as a prisoner, like the prisoner you were or are, but now you were. You're a past prisoner because your penalty has been paid. You've been released from the debt you owed. And then you see the guards close the door in the prison cell, leaving the king's son in the same dark, damp place you once were. So instead of squashing us as rebels, God became our Savior by sending his son to take our place. The king's son put on the shackles we deserve and he paid the penalty we were supposed to pay by dying on a cross in our place. But then he rose from the dead three days later because death could not hold him. He had defeated death and sin and Satan and so they no longer hold power over him or us. And so we can rejoice with great joy because King Jesus was born to be our Savior who would take our penalty in our place. And he defeated the enemies that hold us captive because he was born. Today, we can have peace with God when we should be enemies because we've all rebelled against him. So how do we respond to Jesus' birth? First, because King Jesus was born to be our Savior, we should receive it as good news. Second, because King Jesus was born to be our Savior, we should rejoice with great joy. And third, because King Jesus was born to be our Savior, we should praise and glorify God. The heavenly army that appeared to the shepherds, praise God, giving him the glory. And then when the shepherds left, when everything had been confirmed to them as it should be, they also left glorifying and praising God. The good news of Jesus' birth to be our Savior only comes because of God's initiative to write himself into the story. He would be be completely justified to let us live out the penalty of death our sin has brought. That's what we deserve. But he's given us what we do not deserve, a Savior. And that's grace, totally unmerited favor. And so the only one to be glorified and praised is God alone. All that is wrong with our world with us is totally our doing. And the salvation from it is totally God's doing. And so he should be praised and glorified. So as we close, why was Jesus' birth good news? It's because King Jesus was born to be our Savior. How should we respond to Jesus' birth? First, because King Jesus was born to be our Savior, we should receive his birth as good news. Second, because King Jesus was born to be our Savior, we should rejoice with great joy. And third, because King Jesus was born to be our Savior, we should praise and glorify God. So let me ask you as we close, where are you with God today? With the hustle and bustle of all the activities we do in the name of Jesus' birth at Christmas time, we can lose Jesus in it all as we zip from place to place and figure out presents and wrap them up and figure out who's making what for the Christmas dinner and where are we going. And hey, we can just totally lose Jesus in it all. So, what are you doing? What will you do to respond to Jesus' birth as good news, as the arrival of a king who would be our Savior? If you're a follower of Jesus, he came into this world to save you. You were dead and darkened in your sins and he took on all your wretchedness and all your ugliness to make you white as snow. Thank God that we have that opportunity. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus came into this world to be your savior. You are are dead and darkened in your sins, but God, you can be made new through God. You can be cleansed from all of them and made white as snow as the snow on the ground outside. 
Today you are hearing the good news of an event that changed everything. And if you receive this good news and trust in Jesus, whom it announces, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. So I'm going to close this in prayer, but let's just take a minute to respond to this good news silently to ourselves, and then I'll pray. Father, we know we are undeserving to even be alive because you're the one who gives us breath and life and we have rejected you as the one who gives us breath and life. And so we know it's your grace that we're even here today and we know it's even more of your grace that you would send someone to save us from the just penalty of our rebellion against you. And so would you open our minds and hearts this Christmas season to See Jesus as he truly is, as the king who would be a savior, um, who is you, yourself in the flesh. Would you help us to receive his birth as good news? Would you help us to rejoice with great joy about it? And would you um, help us to glorify and praise you as the only one who makes our salvation possible? And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.